American Uplifter is a compelling leader who tries to breathe life and hope into people around them. Who listen and care and guide and help. Whose way of being in the world inspires. Who uplifts with humor and understanding. Who leads by example. Don't judge. Vulnerable. Bold determination. Who are here to create a better world. Who can learn and teach. Who encourages you. Who shines their light to lead other people. Who uses their best self in order to help others. I found the life that I liked and I worked toward that. We are all uplifters. Mwah, big love. Maureen Spataro is amazing. She lifts every woman up that I know. And she is the victim of sexual assault and domestic violence. She had a mental breakdown at the age of 49. She went and worked on it. She's still working on it. She loves to say her message, her message. And she's just a beautiful gift to us all. She's going out. She's talking, trying to give the warning signs to teenage girls. Welcome to the Uplifters Podcast. I'm your host, Aranza Savas, and you just heard the wonderful Chrissy Canny from one of our earlier episodes introducing Maureen Spataro. Maureen is the author of the book, Press Pause, and if you listened to Chrissy's episode, you probably heard her describe Maureen as a woman who makes her mess her message, which is something I think is a gift truly to all of us who are uplifters, every single one of us has our own mess. Some of these messes are huge and some of them are simply moments. And yet at every opportunity, we have a chance to let these challenges work for us instead of happening to us. Maureen is a survivor of multiple traumas, but she's used them to find purpose and to create a greater impact with her life by using her mess. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you for a very, very beautiful introduction. I'm so touched. Maureen, I know you've described trauma as being a lifelong partner. Yes. So take me back to the very beginning. Well, it starts when I was six. Actually, it starts when I was five, when my mother married my stepfather, who at that time in my life was this handsome, amazing man who married my mother and kind of pulled us out of true poverty that we were living in and kind of changed our lives. We moved into a bigger apartment. I moved on a block that had a lot of kids and a lot of friends. And it was soon after that, that he started grooming me. And, you know, when people use that word grooming, they don't, I don't think they truly understand it. It's, it's as simple as my mother going out for a night of bingo with my grandmother and leaving me home with a meal that I don't want to finish. And telling me and telling my new father, you know, she doesn't leave the table until she finishes that. And her leaving and him coming over after a few minutes and kind of looking at my plate and telling me, don't worry about it. I'm not going to make you sit here. And for the rest of the night, 
you know, I'll eat it for you or I'll hide it in the garbage. And, you know, it's our secret. Something that simple, that quick. And suddenly he's my best friend. He's my best friend. I can stay up a little later when she goes to bingo. I can stay outside a little later when she goes to bingo. And everything is punctuated with, don't forget, this is our secret until it escalates to the point where now he is starting to do things that he convinces me are normal things that happen between dads and their daughters. And, but we need to keep it a secret because my mom's, my mom's dad was not in the picture either. So she wouldn't understand. And it very, very smoothly goes into sexual abuse. And once I was old enough to start to understand that what he was doing was not something that happened between daughters and their fathers, I was already maturing and unfortunately found myself sexually assaulted by another man when I went to, I went to go pick up milk for my mother. You know, when you're young and you live in New York, which is what I did, one of your big rewards is you can cross the street. And the grocery store was just across the street on the corner. And I was finally old enough to do that. And I had been in that store hundreds of times with my mother. And I started going on my own. And one of the trips that I went on my own, he assaulted me in the back of the store. And this was still while my father was sexually assaulting me. And at 15, Again, old enough to do it, went to my family doctor who I knew and I loved, who I'd been going to since I was seven. And he sexually assaulted me during an examination because at that time it wasn't required to have someone in the room with you. And, you know, this was my doctor. Then continued when I was 18 years old, when my first boyfriend raped me, when I was breaking up with him. So it was a history, you know, it was, it was a history of sexual abuse. And the legacy that I was carrying with me was one that had started generations before me because every woman in my family ended up marrying a pedophile. So subsequently, every woman in my family had been a victim of sexual abuse, a victim of pedophilia, and had also been assaulted outside of the family. So we were just one big walking trauma. You know, that would continue in my life. That was that was a pattern of abuse that would continue until I met my husband, who was a wonderful man. And we had a beautiful daughter and we had a beautiful life, but we outgrew each other. And sometimes that happens. We are still good friends. But when I left my marriage, I immediately walked into two more abusive relationships. The last one was for seven years. And that was the relationship that culminated in a nervous breakdown. And, you know, when you wake up one day and you just want to die, you have really reached the bottom of there's nothing left. I never wanted, I didn't feel that I wanted a lot in my life. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be with a man that loved me and who I loved and build a wonderful life with him. And I just couldn't get it right, you know, and the common denominator in every relationship was me. So it had to be me. It was a mess. What a deeply painful and yet understandable conclusion to come to. Yeah, I'm the common denominator. Yeah, and we start to carry that blame. And 
no doubt that story started way back when you were just a little girl experiencing the confusion of this relationship with your stepfather and being told, oh, no, this is normal. This is how daddies and daughters relate. Yeah. And being taught that as long as I did what I was told, as long as I listened and I was a good girl, then I could pretty much have anything that I wanted. I wouldn't get punished. I could go out with my friends. I could go to birthday parties. But the minute there was even a sense that I was starting to understand "Mm, this is not right, or perhaps if he feared that one day I might tell my mother, the abuse kind of widened. I would get punished. I couldn't see my friends. The jealousy in other boys, you know, in boys like Amy or me just having friends who were boys, it was crushing. It was a deciding factor in what high school I would go to because I always went to public school. And when I knew high school was coming and very aware that my friends and I were all at the age where we were going to start dating boys, I didn't want to handle it. And and I applied to an all-girl Catholic high school just to take that pressure off of me because the thought of going to high school and meeting friends and meeting boys and either having to tell them I couldn't go out with them or being punished at the last minute and not being able to go on the date was, it was just, it was a constant pivot. You know, it was constantly waking up with my dukes up going, how am I going to fight this? Well, I know that when I was 49, I just was tired of putting my dukes up every day. And I just thought, you know what? I can't figure it out. So maybe it's time to go home and maybe it's time to just let my family rest because I felt like you know, my whole life had been just a mess. And it was a lot of the mess I was keeping to myself. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, that did not happen. Thankfully, I reached out to my ex-husband and we ended up meeting a, a beautiful woman who referred me to an intensive outpatient program that I went to for three months, took off from work, did just stopped my life which is why I called my book Press Pause because I literally pressed the pause button on everything that was going on in my life. And I said, I have to try to figure out how to get this right because it's the only thing I have left. I don't know what else to do. And I walked into that program with a terrible attitude and really feeling beaten. And I walked out of there to this day, one of their best patients who truly, I put my head down and I did the work and I didn't want to. And there are some days I still don't want to, but I do the work because it's the only way and the only chance I have to create a life I love. So yeah, I got on board. It's so interesting to me that you called it press pause. Yeah. Because you were stuck in this cycle of abuse. Yes. And this response that you learned that you were taught as a little girl was just reinforced by each subsequent trauma. And so if your entire life is throwing punches and trying to mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually protect yourself, it was a battle for life and death. And as you said, how freaking exhausting. And I think back to 
you know, when you used to have tape players and the tape would get all like wrapped up and you kind of had to take the tape out and then manually just sit there with your finger and you stick it in that little plastic hole and sit there and rewind it. Oh my God. I love that visual. I feel like that's exactly what you were doing in those sessions as you, you said, pause, remove the tape, and then I'm going to rewire it. And you ultimately, what you did was you spliced together new stories so that you could see your experience in a new way and tell that story in a new way to yourself. Yeah. And I could understand. I needed to understand Mm. that it wasn't me that it, it, it really had everything to do with what I was exposed to, what I was taught, what I was told. And even though there was something in the back that I knew, but it isn't right, I didn't know how to get out of that mindset. I did not know how do I fix this because to fix it was to step out of a very small box and kind of walk out into something bigger that was foreign. And that was basically happiness, taking care of myself, saying no. Oh no. You know, as a child, if every time you say no, you're punished, the only thing you learn how to say is yes. And then you say yes to everyone. And predators, they're like heat seeking missiles when it comes to that type of personality. Oh, she's not going to fight me. Oh, she feels grateful that I'm even in her life. All right, this is going to be an easy one. I'm going to get everything I want from her. And you kind of stand out from the women who are a little bit more well-rounded or have had a more stable background. That's not to say it can't happen to anybody, but for it to happen to me and all the women in my family as many times as it did, there was a pattern, a thought pattern. Mm -hmm. And then in each of those subsequent traumas, it's all reinforcing. And so the more it happens, the more we believe it and the more we come to expect it. Yes. And it's it's interesting because my mother's cousin introduced her to my stepfather. Her husband and my stepfather were best friends. So subsequently she became best friends with him, which I believe is really how he found out an awful lot about my family, about my mother being a single parent. You know, they're so good at what they do. They're so good and they're so intentional that they know when to like pull the trigger. This is what I'm going to settle into. This is the one I'm going to lure and all under the guise of being, you know, my aunt's best friend. And this for him, this was his craving. This is what he hungered for. And so it's like that animal instinct. And you're right. He was searching for a way to meet that need. Yeah. Did a lot of damage, but sometimes, you know, there are just moments when everything has to explode in order for it to come back together. And I think after generational abuse, generation after generation after, it was just inevitable that at some point one of us would be the one to say, "Mm, no, this isn't right. And I'm not going to I may not know the right way to turn it, but I'm going to say something eventually and I'm going to start to see someone and I'm going to try to talk about it and I'm going to try to figure out, I'm going to have to figure this out. And yes, it's been a lifelong journey, but each step that I've made has taught me so much 
and has brought me to this point. And I know that sounds so cliche, but it's life. You know, trauma is trauma is trauma. Whether you lose someone traumatically, whether you have a traumatic illness, whether you have something other than sexual abuse happen to you, whether it be an accident or an illness, our trauma and our trauma doesn't define us. It's how we deal with it and how we move through it. And I think because I was so young, you know, moving through it was very difficult because I just didn't know. But once I, once I stepped out of my last relationship and said, it's either this or you're going to die, it's kind of like a cancer diagnosis. You're either going to take the medicine or you're going to die. You know what? You're going to take the medicine. You're going to do whatever it is. You're going to find out everything possible you need to do to keep yourself healthy. And that's what I do on a daily basis. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it's a little harder. And on the harder days, I give myself a little bit of grace and say, all right, you know what? It's okay. You can get up and just stay in your pajamas. So what does it look like now to take care of Maureen? I think the biggest thing is I've learned to say no. I've stopped being afraid of removing people from my life that I know are not good for me. It is kind of new because I really love, if you're in my life, then I really, really love and value you. I want to be that person that stands next to you because I know what it's like not to have that person in my life. Even though my mother was that person, you know, your mom is still your mom, but I know what it's like to think of something or want to do something and be too afraid to do it for whatever reason. So I want to be that person that says, yes, you can do it. Yes. And once I embraced myself as that person, it kind of opened the door to these amazing women who came into my life. I love women. I used to be afraid of them because I always felt like I wasn't good enough to be in the room with them. But now I know what I bring to the table and I like what I bring to the table. So Part of that, though, is understanding that the wrong people sometimes can come through the door. And I'm not a bad person if I just decide, you know what? I don't think you're my person. I don't think I'm your person or you're my person. So let's just wish each other well. And when we see each other, hey, how are you? But I don't have to invite you into my world. And that still something new. I haven't had to do it too often, but I have had to do it. And so do you like literally say those words? This is not a fit. You're not my person. No, but what I will say to them is what I have said to people is that I've enjoyed the time that I've spent with them and I want to wish them well and I always want to wish them the best, but maybe it's just better that the friendship is redefined a little more simply. It's just understood that, you know, we're not the best for each other. You know, we have different points of view that just can't seem to click. And I'm not a perfect person. I forget things. Right now, I have something going on in my life that is literally taking up 75% of my brain. So I'm forgetful. But I'm also a woman who will look at you and say, I'm just being the worst friend right now. And I'm sorry. And if someone comes to me and and they're upset with me, I am going to be the friend that looks at them and says, you know what? You're right. And I was thoughtless and I'm sorry. 
because I'm not afraid of that. I don't feel like by apologizing defines who I am. Actually, it kind of does, but in a way that's really safe for people. And if I don't feel safe with you, if I can't apologize to you and have you look at me and accept that or continue to go on and on, you're not my person because I can't humble myself more. And if you can't accept what I'm saying to you, then there's no more that I could offer you that's going to make you feel better about the situation or about me. And that was my biggest step, Arances. That was my biggest lesson in taking care of me. It's okay to be humble. It's okay to say I'm sorry. It's okay to say I'm thoughtless or I don't know what I was thinking. I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I forgot that. And oh my God, I'm so sorry. And not feeling like, oh my God, I'm this horrible, terrible person. You know, just understanding I'm perfectly imperfect. And it goes back, I think, to this speaking up and punishment equation that was so deeply embedded in you. And so it makes perfect sense that your path to healing is about voicing your needs, your experience, your apologies, and creating boundaries that serve you. You know what I found really interesting in, in a big part of this journey? When, when people would confront me about something that I did, I would go on such a defensive that I, I could literally clear a room with my anger or what came across as my anger. Once I understood that I wasn't angry at them, I was angry at myself and I was scared that because I hurt someone, they were no longer going to want have me in their life. I didn't know how to control it. I didn't understand that a simple, I'm sorry, an explanation was all that was necessary. This, it was fear that always drove me. Oh my God, this person's so mad at me. They're never going to want to talk to me again. No, I have to tell you, no, I have to. And if they were too upset to listen, I just, hammered away at it until it became a screaming match. And it was all a jumble of my insecurities. It was all the things of, no, 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 don't leave me. You've been good to me. I, I can't lose someone like you. Please hear me. Yes. And once I learned to listen and quiet myself and let the other person have their moment so that I could really truly understand where it was coming from, it made all the difference in the world to me, to my heart and my healing. And how I took care of myself. Because once you explode at someone, you can't take that back. Mm -hmm. Getting to that rage is exhausting and it feels disgusting for me. Once I learned, just be still, Maureen, just be still. They're not attacking you. This is their pain. This is their hurt. This is their insults. On whatever level it came at me, it was okay to apologize. It was okay to look at them and say, you're right. And I'm really sorry that I did that to you. That was not my intention. And that healed me so much because I didn't feel like a bad person anymore because I hurt someone. I felt sorry, but I didn't feel like, oh my God, you're the worst person. You better stop this. If you don't stop this, nobody's going to love you. Nobody's going to like you. It was such a freeing moment. It is so empowering too. Yeah. To be able to... Claim your own emotional experience of this 
Because what you're doing when you're saying that is, oh, yeah, I am a human. And sometimes I react and I am not in my best self. Yes. But I'm not going to hate myself for this. And so it's like every time you were asking for forgiveness, you were also giving yourself forgiveness. A hundred percent. You're accepting that you're a human being and we all want to be our very best. We do. We all want to, you know, put our best foot forward. We always want to be to the people we love. We want to be everything that they want us to be. And we want to know the right things to say and the right thing to do, the best gift to give. But the fact of the matter is that's just, that's not feasible and it's not healthy. You have to just say, okay, you know, this time I didn't give the best gift. This time, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, I didn't have the right words. It's okay to relinquish that to someone else and just be the observer or the one that claps and and says, wow, you know, good for you. I'm so glad that you were able to help them. It's okay to be that person. That person is just as important. Yeah. That person is a person. Yeah. So Maureen, You've talked a lot about making your mess your message. What does that look like now in your life? Well, the first thing was the book, writing honestly about what had happened in my life, getting permission from my family, because that was really important to me. I was going to be divulging some pretty heavy duty family secrets. I grew up in a very close knit neighborhood. And so there were an awful lot of people who knew Maureen as the happy-go-lucky, always had a smile on her face. They had no idea what had gone on and just thought my dad was really strict. So the mess that was sitting in my chest and in my stomach, which those feelings started when I was a child, those feelings of, oh, something is wrong. Oh, this doesn't feel good because a child can't verbalize before they understand what's truly happening. All that mess that was in my stomach and in my chest and laying on my heart, it was time to clear it out. So the book was, well, actually the nervous breakdown was the first step that led to the book because during that time that I was in that program, writing became my skill. Writing became my outlet. I always loved to write even as a child, but I was also smart enough. This is what it, this is part of putting your dukes up. I had to be smart enough to know I couldn't write anything down because my father would eventually find it and there would be hell to pay for it. But thank God I had a tremendous memory. And in reading the book, my mother, my aunt, my family, they were like, this is all true. I can't, you know, things that I would describe. How did you remember that? You were so little, but it's true. That's it. It just was stored in a little box. So I did that. And then I started promoting it. I started doing speaking engagements. I joined an organization that was actually looking for a a survivor who would be a speaker. And that's how I found my way going into schools and speaking in schools, spoken to survivor groups. And my mess has truly become my message because the secret, everybody wants to know what the secret is to anything that they're doing. How can I get there faster? And I tell people that the only secret to survival of any trauma is willingness. You have to be willing. You have to want to survive it. 
you have to be willing to do the work. There's no shortcut. You lose your leg, you have to go to rehabilitation. Your life is forever changed. You have cancer, you're going to have to go for treatments or however it is, whatever way it is you heal yourself, you're going to have to stick to that promise that that's what you're going to do. If you've been sexually abused, you have to promise yourself that you're going to do whatever work it is to move through it. A person who has cancer is never not a cancer survivor. A person who has been attacked or robbed or hit by a car, that never goes away. A person who loses a limb or anything, you know, loses their, loses their home in a fire. That's a trauma that never goes away. It's not that you remain a victim. You were a victim of something. You survived it. But surviving isn't enough. You have to thrive. You have to learn how to thrive beyond that. And that's usually looking at that mess, finding the message in it and sharing it so that other people can heal. And that's what I continue to do. That's what I do with every part of my life. I love being that person. I love being able to look at someone and go, you can tell me because I get it. I get it. And what I tell you, you know, is going to be the truth. You know it. I find a great deal of peace knowing that I can say things to people that have been hurt in ways that you can't imagine. And when they hug me and they thank me, I'm proud that I opened my mouth and I opened my life. I'm an open book, literally. That took a lot of courage to call for help that first day. And then that willingness that you talk about, I love the idea of it. I love this idea of empowering ourselves with progress by saying, my job is to just stay willing and open. And that's really freaking hard. That willingness is hard to find. So I don't want to underestimate what that requires. So you talk about this program in a way that paints a picture for me of a place where you had expert support, you had a sense of, of safety, you were challenged to look at things through new lenses. What do you believe were the conditions that enabled you to find that willingness in your journey? Well, certainly. My family was there for me when they saw, you know, my family had a very strong sense that I was in an abusive relationship. They never gave me ultimatums. When things were wrong, they simply helped me and let me know they were there. And when I went into that program, they let me know that whatever I needed to say or do, I didn't need anybody's permission. They just wanted me to come back person that I was to them once in my life. The clinicians that were in there, especially my lead clinician, the first week I was there, she looked at me and she said, you know what you are, Maureen? You're a warrior with a fragile soul. And right now, your fragile soul is what's guiding you. But I see the warrior in there. And that's the Maureen. 
that I am determined to have show up every day. When I wasn't showing up, they let me know if I didn't get on the track, they were going to have to hospitalize me. And that was my biggest fear. I didn't want to be on a psych ward or in a psych hospital. And the next day I walked in with my makeup on, my hair done, a different outfit on, my boots. And I marched in there still feeling like I was no one. And I passed by my clinician's office and I heard her like push her chair and it rolled out into the hallway. And she went, excuse me. And I turned around, I looked at her and she said, there's my warrior. Now let's get to work. And she laughed. And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, good luck with that. And she said, oh no, she has arrived. That just, and it was a safe place. I could yell, I could curse, I could be vulnerable and cry, which is what I did most. And then I could start to appreciate and enjoy feeling like I was changing for the better and becoming the woman that I really always wanted to be. And feeling like I could be her. And I took those notebooks and I took all the things that they taught me and I still utilize them. So it was my family and those clinicians that really, yeah. It sounds like it was at first belief. It was belief in your story and trusting you and your experience It was belief in your ability to tap into your gentle warrior. Yes. And then it was support and again, trust to say, like, this may be hard. This may be uncomfortable for all of us, but we believe that facing this discomfort will lead to greater joy, greater connection, greater happiness. And so there is this beautiful blend of acknowledgement, acceptance, and belief that I think make up the support recipe that you're painting. And I, I wanted to point this out because I feel like so often when we are struggling and we're looking for help or a way through, it can feel really daunting. Like, which way do I go? Where do I start? Who do I know that's going to help me? And I think those, those are the filters that we can look for is where are the people who believe you, who acknowledge your story, your truth, your trauma, who accept you and your story, and who help you find a sense of belief within yourself. Those are the healers. And it's hardest for people who may not feel like they have anybody like that in their life. And I get yeah. that. But one thing that my mother said to me when I graduated and when I, you know, I really had a moment where I could thank my whole family and tell them, you know, if it wasn't for you, I just don't really know who I, where I would be. I I don't know what would have happened to me. And it really, it was my mother who looked at me and she said, well, then you still have to work on the greatest lesson that you haven't learned. And it was kind of like, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, you were your strongest advocate. You were the one who decided, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm going to try one more time. I'm going to see if there's a solution. She said, you didn't call me. You didn't call your friends and say, what do you think of this? She goes, you 
laid down and then sat back up and said, I'm not going to do this. I have to, I have to figure this out. And that was the catalyst to the healing. And so for people who say to me, I have no one, I have no children, I have no family, I have no friends. You know what? We all have someone. If we think about it, there's always someone that we can pick up the phone and say, I just need you for this second. In my moment, it was my ex-husband. It was, I need you to come here and drive me to the hospital. But from that moment on, it was me who made all the decisions. I could have said, no, I'm not going into the program. No, just take me back home. I don't want to do this. I could have said all the things that I wanted to say. Trust me, I wanted to say. And just curl back up and just waste away. So we are our biggest advocates. We can never convince ourselves that we have no one because we always have ourselves. Always. And we are so much stronger than we think we are. We are. We truly are. And we're so much more resilient than we think we are. We are. You know, we're resilient, we're courageous, we're humble, you know, we're extraordinary. And I think sometimes when we when we use words like that to describe ourselves, we're thinking we're conceited, but we're not. We're simply acknowledging the good that's within us and the strength that we have. And you know what? You have to do that in this life because life is hard. You know, this is not <laughs> this is not an easy place to be, but the rewards in jumping in and using those things that are deep down inside of us to push us a little farther, to get us over those, those moments that we think we can't get over, to celebrate the moments that are really beautiful. And we're lucky to be able to experience. I mean, that's what it's for. That's what it's all about. So Maureen, how do you know when you're thriving? That's a great question. I know that I am surthriving. Every morning I wake up and I no longer have my dukes up. It sounds like a really simple response, but when you have lived your whole life starting the day out ready to fight whatever you think is going to come into your life that day and you no longer have to do that, you've already thrived because now it's like the landscape is clear. You can start planning what you want to plant. You can start going where you want to go. You can just start living your life the way you want to live it. And being able to plan out your life and make it as happy as possible is probably the ultimate form of thriving. Yeah, I think every one of us has subconsciously or quietly in the back of our minds, a set of metrics that give us a signal of when we're doing well and when we're not. And it sounds like for you, a sense of freedom is high on that list. It really is because I have nothing in it that's going to purposely make me sad. So even when the bumps in the roads or the, the sadness or the hardships come, I face them because they're just life. And now I can live life on my terms. So I've kind of reached that level that I've always wanted to just creating a happy life for myself. And as you say that, you say it in a way that shows your leadership in your life. And 
your ability to create and protect your peace despite lots of attacks on it throughout your life, lots of disruptions to your peace, and yet consciously, intentionally, meticulously, you have built back up a safe space for yourself. Thank you. Yes. You know what? You couldn't have put it any more perfectly. And if we just keep striving and we just keep kind of plugging away at what we want for our lives and what we want to bring into our lives, then it will come to us. It will. It will come to us. So as we close out this beautiful conversation, I want to bring it back to all of you listening. You uplifters, probably most of us have not experienced the exact trauma or tragedies that Maureen has. And yet each of us has faced our own challenges. Each of us has fought battles and each one of us has grown stronger and wiser from that work. And so as we close out today, I want to invite us to just take a quiet moment with ourselves. If you can, now is that moment to place a hand on your heart and close your eyes. And ask yourself this question, how do I know when I am thriving? What does it feel like in your body when you are thriving? What is it like for you emotionally? What is it like for you in action? The more we understand how we are in these moments, the more we understand the context that helps us create our own safe and courageous spaces for caring for ourselves and continuing the beautiful work of caring for others. Maureen, thank you for all you do for your community and for the world. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for creating such a beautiful space to do it. It is an honor. For all of you listening, join us in our safe and courageous space over at theupplifterspodcast.com where you'll hear lots more from me and from other uplifters in your inbox every single week. Thank you for listening to the Uplifters Podcast. If you're getting a boost from these episodes, please share them with the uplifters in your life and then join us in conversation over at theupplifterspodcast.com. Head over to Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast and like, follow, and rate our show. It'll really help us connect with more uplifters and it'll ensure you never miss one of these beautiful stories. Mwah! Big love! Painted water sunshine With rosemary and tongue Dwelling up perplexing Though you find it vexing Toss a star and hover Be your own best lover Relish in a new prime Plant a tree in springtime
dance without all hindsight, bring the sun to twilight, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, whoa. Lift you up, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, whoa, lift you up, do 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 Beautiful. I cried. Right? In the pre-chorus, right? Uh, uh -huh. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, stop crying. Mommy, stop crying. You're disturbing the peace. <laughs>